Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And welcome to another beautiful day holding church today, a gospel saving church at my house here in McKinney. And uh, it's a beautiful 70 right now, or 78 going to be today. Awesome first Sunday in December here in McKinney, Texas. And here we are having church. Boy, boy, boy. Who would have ever thunk it? Not me. Not me for sure. And I never thought we'd have been doing this. Uh, <clears throat> when I look back at how God has made all this happen and how it's all come to pass, I just think how amazing and everything and how everything's so getting so organized and we have online and we have our webcasts and you know everybody that's been coming here and lives just reflecting the truth lives reflect, reflecting the word and uh, I'm just thankful to be a part of it thankful to be a part of it so if you guys will join me in a word of prayer before we begin our scripture reading today and our service and then we'll get going pray with me now Lord thank you so much for this awesome awesome December 2nd 2012, Lord God. Thank you so much for bringing us here. and Thank you so much for the ability that you've given me. Thank you so much for the wisdom that you freely give when we ask. As your word says, if we ask for wisdom, without doubting, you give. And Lord, I just thank you in John that you say, for those that ask for the Spirit, those that have the Spirit, that the Father gives the Spirit without measure. I'm so thankful, Lord God, that you would give your spirit without measure to anyone and everyone that asks. I pray, Lord God, that you would touch my lips today, that as I speak your words out of your word and all the things that you've taught me over this week to prepare for this sermon, that, Lord, my mouth would speak words and your Holy Spirit would just touch people's hearts, whoever's listening and bring them into your kingdom and draw those that are yours deeper and closer into you and a more powerful walk. I pray that you would keep distractions down and keep the enemy out. And I pray, Lord God, that we would fall deeper in love with you today and prepare me to be a better speaker. And I pray your word would land on good soil today so that would bear 30 and 60 and 100 fold good fruit for your kingdom. And I love you and I praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our message today is going to be out of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 11 through 17. Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to turn, Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> we'll also be in John, but we'll get to that when we get there. The title of today's message, I almost didn't have one until just this morning. And our title of our message today will be Accurate Directions 
to love. So let's read 12 through 17, and then we'll get into our teaching. Verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So before we, or as we get into our section, we're going to look at something amazing that God showed me, something I had never seen before ever. And it's actually before our verses start in verse 12. We're going to look at between 11 and 12. Where there's that little gap there. And in my Bible, it's a New King James Version. It says, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. So we're going to look at these gold nuggets that God has given me. Well, between verses 11 and verse 12, believe it or not, there is a huge section of time that Matthew chooses or was not led to record or write down. Um... Remember what I had said a couple weeks ago, or last week in fact, that Jesus looked like he may, might have taken some time off to recuperate from his wilderness experience. Well, looks like he took less time off than I even thought, because he was very busy and he kept moving. In fact, as, as we're going to see as a side note, or as we're going to see later on in John, because that's actually the what we're going to be looking today is in Gospel of John too. But as a side note, in recorded scripture, Jesus was either preaching, teaching, feeding others, or on a mountaintop praying. And I believe that only really a couple few times did we ever really see him says he rested or he slept or so on and so forth. And, you know, that could be a sermon of its own, and we're not going to get to that today. But just Jesus really never stopped. Once he started ministry, once he began, and once this <clears throat> wilderness experience happened with John or with, with the devil and all that, he just kept moving. He kept going. And he kept going and going and going and going and going. We don't really see that he rested too much. But anyway, in this time period, between 11 and 12, Luke records, remember in Luke 4.14, I believe, 4.12 or 4.14, that he came up, you know, left from Satan, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he came up. But he did not go to Galilee as it looks like in the Scriptures that he did. He did many things, but one thing that he did not do is he did not go up to Galilee, as you can easily read or misinterpret, as I did so many times, that he went to Galilee. And you say, what? Let's read it again. Let's start in 11. And he says, says, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So it seems like... From 11 to 12, it seems like he got down with Satan, cast him away. Angels came, ministered to him, went right to Galilee. And you say, well, that's right there what it says. But uh, there's a gap there. 
believe it or not, between 11 and 12, you can put the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19, all the way through John, chapter 3, verse 26. And maybe even the whole of John, chapter 4, where Jesus meets up with the Samaritan woman at the well. So you might be saying, Ed, how do you know this? Well, that's a good question that you might be asking in your mind right now, how I know this, because it does seem that Jesus went right from the Satan right to Galilee, because that's the way it kind of looks. So I will explain something to you, and I will explain it to you exactly the way God showed it to me. Because you are right. It does look that way. But appearances can be very deceiving. So for explanation, look in depth with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And I'll point out the main key that shows us what I'm saying is correct. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Now Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. That is the key. Rest your mind on that. Now, go to John chapter 3, verse 20 through, or sorry, chapter 23, verses, or chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. And let's read these last, let's read these 22, 23, and 24. John chapter 3. Give you a moment to get there. So it says, starting in verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Verse 23. Now John also was baptizing in Ainan, near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Verse 24. Here's the key. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So, stay in John, because that's where we'll look, be looking at, at how we know. But amazingly, we have all the way through John chapter 3, almost to John chapter 4, and John is not in prison yet. And you go back to John 1, 19... And it starts out, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who you are. And then it goes from there and it goes to Jesus kind of walking along and John the Baptist seeing Jesus. And he's walking along. Well, you say to yourself, because if you read John 1, or chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, you say, well, Jesus wasn't even, he didn't even meet Satan in those paragraphs and those scriptures. Well, you're right. John started his gospel after Jesus was in the wilderness with Satan. 119 of John is actually after the angels came and ministered to Jesus. That's where John decided he was going to start his gospel. And so, in the midst of that, remember how I said that Jesus really didn't rest, he just kind of moved and went on and he shook and he kept on going and he went and he went and he went and he went and he kept going. Look at some of the things 
that we get out of John that Jesus did in the midst of verses 11 and 12. Because you think well, it's only one verse. But again, appearances can be deceiving. So what did he do in the midst of verses 11 and 12 in Matthew? Verse 35 in John 1, he went and got himself some disciples. Another thing he did, something you think, I can't believe that he did this, but he went uh, that certain wedding in Cana of Galilee. He did go to Galilee then. He was all over the place, though. And where the water was turned to wine, you might remember that one, famous story. That was actually Jesus' first miracle that he performed. He went for the first time in 2.13, and he went, and went into the temple and he turned over tables and he cast out people or rebuked people because they were making God's house a house of selling things and trading rather than, rather than a house of prayer. Uh, what else did he do? He had a Passover, one of three or four that he would have had during his ministry. He had at least three or four Passovers during his ministry because he ministered for about three, three and a half years. What else did he do? In John chapter 3, almost the whole chapter, he met with Nicodemus. They had that big conversation about what it meant to be born again. And he went to Judea and he held some baptisms, which would be 3, 22, 22 huh, I don't know why I keep getting that mixed up, but which would be chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, which is all the time there. All I could tell you is this is amazing, amazing stuff. In fact, I have never really looked at the timeline before, before this, we studied this chapter and verses this week. I've never really done that before. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, interestingly enough, all have it written as Matthew does. They do not have anything between Christ's encounter with Satan and the Galilean ministry. John is the only one that you bring over from that to show you that between 11 and 12, he did more things than just went right from the, the uh, temptation of Christ or temptations from Satan into the Galilean ministry. And uh, in fact, God's word is so deep and so awesomely strong and powerful and so so many aspects of it, I have read this section of scripture over at least 40 times. This time the Lord threw it on my heart to look at the perspectives of the different gospel writers. And um, I did, but I had read over this section of scripture in Matthew 40 to 50 times, and I've never seen this before. That's how deep the Word of God is. I've, I've never, one day, I want to examine and go through and go over the timelines and the things that happen chronologically, but as of yet, I've never had time to do it. But as I keep learning here, <laughs> looks like God's going to do it for me because I've never, never seen this before. I always just took it for granted at face value that Jesus was tempted by Satan and then went to Galilee and started his ministry, but he did not. So 
Amazing, 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 amazing. Back to our text. Go to verse 12 in Matthew again. That'll be our. This is this is where we start our. This is where we start our main thrust of what we're going to be talking about today. So in verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So in verse 12, we hear that Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison. We're not gonna, I'm not going to go through the whole story of what happened to John the Baptist, but we are going to touch on it a little bit. And we are going to say that John, being a very godly man, had an encounter with Herod, who was the king of Israel at the time, the king of Jerusalem at the time. That wasn't... And John had an encounter with Herod, who was the king, and Herod's wife, which would have been, her name was Herodias. And John stepped up against Herod and Herodias because Herod married Herodias, but while she was his brother Philip's wife. So Herod, being the king, did a very horrible, heinous thing. He married the wife of another man. Horrible thing. So John stepped up and he spoke out against it because it was a very un ungodly thing that he did. And that's all we're going to speak on that. But, but the thrust of what... God, want, God showed me here what he wanted me to talk about today was the fact that John the Baptist had been thrown in prison for doing a godly thing. John the Baptist lived for Christ as a godly man more than any man probably ever in the world. He's probably up there top two or three people that have ever lived for God in his whole life. Just guy was a radical. He lived in the wilderness he ate locusts and wild honey. He was sold out. And not only at his age, at the age that he was now in his 30s, but he was also sold out to God since his birth because he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, as we've read before, from birth. So the guy was a very, very godly man. So you would think in your brain... That this guy being a very godly man, very awesome, holy guy, he should have had an awesome life. <laughs> Such an awesome, Holy Spirit filled, everything went great for him, he had no problems, uh, he sat around and praised the Lord every day and just had communion with God and just awesome. Awesome life, right? Certainly, certainly that's easily to see, you know, man, the guy lives for God. Certainly God, man, his, his life according to the Lord, should have been awesome. That's what we would think in the mental. But is that what we saw? Is that what we see? No. In fact, John was no stranger to persecution at all. Jesus had this to say as a testimony about how some people thought about John and even himself. So some people were saying about John and Jesus, Luke 7, 33 and 34, don't turn there, just listen. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was what people were saying about John and Jesus while they were alive. They faced persecution. 
sad. Realistically, even today, and even then, nothing's changed. The people that live godly lives face persecution. I myself, in my walk with the Lord, have faced lots of persecution. People have cussed me out. Nobody ever put me in prison yet for speaking the name of the Lord, but who knows, it may still happen yet before I die. But I have had people cuss at me. People swear at me. I told a guy at work one time, man, hey, you know, Jesus loves you. And he used the F word and said, blank, you're Jesus. Right to my face. I didn't know what to do. I, it's the first time I've ever had somebody use the F word and say, blank, you Jesus. That, that was, wow. I just couldn't believe it. People alienated me. People don't really like to talk to me. People kind of avoid me. Kind of an ostracization. Ostracization, how do you say it? I myself have faced persecutions from people that don't know the Lord or that have a religious relationship with them, or yeah, which is not a relationship at all. They just, they're just religious. And they scoff at me and they persecute me because I have a relationship with God and I'm a child of God. But we must remember what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, speaking about the persecutions that he had faced in his life. And he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He didn't say they might. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And as an interesting side note to this persecution that Christians will face, the persecution that I'm talking about here that's happened to me and others like John have faced is really a good indication that a person is on the right path of eternal life as well too, actually, believe it or not. And that they are really following Christ and that they are really saved because even Jesus said himself in John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And he says, here's the killer in 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And again in Matthew 10, 34-36, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now these verses in Matthew and John, where, where, Matt, where Jesus speaks in Matthew about he'll set a man, a, a father against his son and a mother against her daughter. God doesn't want this to happen. God doesn't desire a father and a son not to get along. He doesn't desire whole families to be broken up for Christ like happens overseas in Pakistan and in Indonesia when a Muslim becomes a Christian. What happens? A lot of Muslim families completely, completely disown their Christian children. They won't have anything to do with them. They kick them out of the house. In fact, a lot of Muslim families will kill 
their child if they become a Christian. Or vice versa, if a Muslim man or a Muslim daughter, they'll force them to Muslim, marry a Muslim if they become a Christian, and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, Christ knew that this would happen, this persecution of the people that would decide to follow Christ would happen. He doesn't want it to happen, but he knows that it is going to happen. And I only bring this up because being a Christian is not an easy thing. Being a Christian is a difficult thing. It has its downsides. People treating you in different ways, people scorning you, people persecuting you, people talking to you in a bad way, people deciding not to follow, don't like it when you decide to follow. Because as Paul wrote, and I think I believe it was in one of the Corinthians, he said that they think it a strange thing that you don't run with them anymore in doing all the evil things that they do. And that's the thing. Becoming a Christian means that you stop doing evil. You stop doing things of the flesh. You stop doing, you abstain from those things. But it does not compare all the suffering and persecution that I faced to the love and the relationship that God offers me that I have with God every single day of my life. Now am I saying that people, that all people are like this toward real Christians? Absolutely not. But although people have a respect for me, they really don't care to be around me. Oftentimes they'll avoid me. Because they, they know if they're around me for long enough, I'm going to start talking to them about Jesus, or Jesus is going to be in my speech, or God's going to come up. And, and one really specific thing that they do not like, they don't like the name Jesus. You could say, God bless you, or have a God blessed day, or, oh, you know, thanks be to God. And people don't much take offense to God or even Lord. But it's specifically upon the name of Jesus. When you speak or say the name of Jesus, people hate the name of Jesus. Sadly enough, the name of Jesus has been slandered People that say they're Christians but don't live for Christ give Christ a black eye. Religion, which comes in the name of even Jesus, even though they start religious wars, which aren't anything that Jesus ever said. Jesus never said, if you love me, go out and kill people if they won't convert to me. He never said that. Jesus never did anything bad to anybody, in fact. In fact, people always did only bad to him. He loved others. He cared about others. He lived his whole life for others. He sacrificed for others. And yet, that one name, that one name, people hate him and his name. It's really sad. Back to verse 12. We weren't going to make a whole sermon about a persecution, but it is a fact that it happens. Look again, verse 12. I'm going to read it one more time, and then we're going to get to the next segment of our study. 
Uh, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. That's important. And after leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So, a few weeks, a month ago, we talked about a specific word called prophecy. And that we hear that, we see that again here. Matthew gives us yet another prophecy. Now, if you've been keeping track, because I have, we had six, and now we have seven. <clears throat> we have three chapters, seven prophecies. We had one prophecy in chapter one. We had whopping four in chapter two. We had one in chapter three, and we had one in chapter four. So officially now Matthew has written about prophecy in each chapter of the first three chapters of his gospel. That's important. Remember how important prophecy is. Without it, we cannot prove that Jesus is the one that God sent into the world to save us from our sins. Without prophecy, Christ could have been anybody. God could have sent anybody and we never would have known. Amazingly enough, prophecy shows us yet another level of God's love. You say, well, how can prophecy show us another level of God's love? Let's put it this way. The fact that we have prophecy and the Bible as a whole and all the things that are in the Bible give us like a spiritual roadmap to our destination. The Bible says that it has the words, Christ says, I have the words of eternal life. So if we're looking at our roadmap and we want to know how to get to heaven, we got to look somewhere. Well, there's a lot of religions out there. There's a lot of ways out there. But because of prophecy, we know that our loving Father, because God claims to be a loving Father in His Word, that, our, that a loving father would not give a false or a fake roadmap to teach you, to tell you how to get to eternal life. A loving father would give his children, people on earth, a real deal, one that you can test, one that you can prove, a real roadmap to eternity to people that he loves, which is what we see because of prophecy. And the, peop and the Bible actually says, ironically enough, the Bible actually says that people are born lost. We're born lost because of sin. But God is love. And he gives anyone that is willing to seek the correct directions. But people have to seek him according to his word. And prophecy, along with a couple other things that we're going to see, Shows people that are interested in it really look that they can see correct directions to get to eternal life. And by that, I've never seen before in my whole life that the whole New Testament, especially the whole Bible as a whole, but specifically the New Testament, we see how much God really loves us. And not only prophecy, but we see three different things in the Bible 
that God gives us that we have proof that God's word sits above every other religion, every other faith in the whole world. We have three proofs of the Bible that but that outdistance any other faith or religion in the whole world that show us that the Bible is an accurate, loving roadmap from a loving father that he wants us to see. He's giving us accurate directions to those that would seek his direction. They are, number one, prophecy. And the definition of prophecy would be something that is said or spoken hundreds and thousands of years beforehand that was, of course, recorded, and that hundreds and thousands of years later came to be. That's number one. Number two, we have a correct, accurate historical reading here. The whole Bible, that's what it is. It's a correct, accurate historical reading of a certain time in the world that we've had in the world. And, importantly, it lines up with other Secular, non-Christian, if you didn't know what secular means, non-Christian historical accounts, the Bible lines up right with those with those happen. Number two, historical. Number three, we have archaeology. And this is by far the second biggest one. We have prophecy and archaeology being the two biggest. Um, archaeology are things that they find that date back to an era that the Bible talked about. For instance, many people don't know this. The Smithsonian, which is an atheistic university, or I'm sorry, an atheistic museum, goes, if they want to find a battle, or if they want to find some, of, they, they actually use the Bible as a roadmap to go find different archaeological finds from different things that have happened over the history of the world. Uh, so if they want, they, they think, well, let's look at the Bible. It says, the Bible says there was a bad battle, and we look at the areas that it was in, and they go to that area where the Bible said that there was this great battle, and they start digging. And guess what they find? They find the things that the Bible said were there. They found towns. They find coinage. They find weapons. They find civilizations. Mankind has been looking in the Bible for hundreds of years looking for different things that the Bible said were there and they go to those places where the Bible said that they were and they're there. Archaeology. Within prophecy, historicity, and archaeology, the Bible hands down proves itself, God proves itself to be way above any other religion in the whole world as far as accurateness and correctness goes. Why is that important? Because all religions claim to have the way to heaven. All religions claim to be the way to God. But how do we know which one is right? How do we know? They all say this, they all say that, they all say this aspect about God, they all say that aspect about God. But how do we know that the Bible is God's correct, accurate one that sits far above the other ones? And those three things tell us that because no other religion or faith in the world has any of those things that prove it. You can actually take the Bible and prove the things in the Bible. You can go out and you can prove them. Amazing. And realistically, 
another aspect of God's love. God says, seek me. Well, a loving father doesn't have a son or a daughter seek him when there's nothing to find. And realistically, God gives us so much to seek, so much to find. All we have to do is seek. That's our only response, is to seek. So one thing that God wants us to seek, God is big in his word on relationship. He's huge on relationship. Now my challenge to us today, all of us, are you seeking God? Whether or not you're a Christian listening to this, or whether you're not a Christian listening to this, God says, I'm there, you can seek me. If you're, if you're in right standing with God, and you're saved, and you're on his path, and you're following Christ with your life, and you're trusting in him, you should be seeking him. And I'll describe a little bit of this in just a moment. I'm just kind of laying this out there. Or you realize you don't live for Christ, and your life doesn't resemble God's word, and you live for yourself. Are you seeking God to see if he's really real and to see how much he loves you. God is big on relationship. Remember I just said that. In marriage, a husband slash wife should be seeking daily better ways to love their spouse more and have a deeper relationship with them. This is one of the things that makes for a great marriage. Well, ironically, we're called, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is saved, if anyone's a child of God, we're called the bride of Christ. Well, look what I just said, husband, wife. God considers anybody that's his, his bride. He's our spiritual husband in a supernatural way. He's our spiritual husband. He's not our real husband, like where we really get married and we have relations with him like a man would with a woman, but he is our spiritual husband. And what makes for a good relationship is if we're a, a husband and wife are seeking, seeking how to please their husband and wife. A wife doesn't keep making a certain food if she knows her husband hates it. A husband doesn't get his wife red roses if she loves pink roses. Husbands and wives do things for one another because they love them. And if a husband does something for a wife and she says, well, I don't really like that very much. If a loving husband's not going to keep buying that same gift for his wife that she doesn't like. And vice versa, same thing for a wife to a husband. A wife's not going to continue to do something for a husband that he absolutely hates. Same thing with God. God says we're the bride of Christ. A Christian is somebody that seeks after the things that God loves and God wants them to do and is constantly seeking, he or she is constantly seeking what God loves and what God wants and you're going and you're finding out those things and you're doing them because you love them. You don't do them to be saved, but we do them because we love him. If you're not married, check this one out, what the Lord showed me. If a man or a woman meets someone 
and they realize they want to have a relationship with the other person. Now, not obviously it wouldn't be two people, but if a man saw that he liked a girl or a girl saw that he liked a guy, what do they have to do? They have to seek and they have to find out what the other person likes and loves and do those things so the other person will notice them. This is how relationships begin. I believe the word would be wooing. A man woos a woman when he loves her, or a woman woos a man when she loves him, when she wants to get together with him, when she wants to come to know him. And they seek the one and the other, whoever's one that's interested, will seek the other one and find, start to talk to them. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Hey, what, what, uh, what's your name? Hey, well, you know, can we start talking? I'd like to talk to you. What, what do you like? What do you dislike? And then they find out the things that that person likes and loves, and they do them. In seeking, you either show the person that you're continuing to love, that you still love them along the way, or and if you're not in a relationship, by seeking that person, you show that person that you do want to have a relationship with them. So believe it or not, that is our creator. God put those same things in us that are in him. He is the originator of these desires in people's hearts. And remember, the Bible says that we were made in his image. In the image of God, he made man and woman. So, seeking, people, seeking. Are you seeking Christ daily if you know him? And how much are you seeking him? If you would consider your relationship with God, like you would consider your relationship with your wife or your girlfriend, if you consider that a deep one, and if you would think, how much time do I spend with my wife or my spouse on a daily basis? How much time do I spend speaking to them? How much time do I spend loving them? How much time do I spend caring for them or looking to their desires? How much time do you do that? And in that like manner, look at your relationship with God. How much time do you spend seeking the things that he wants you to do? How much time do we seek spending time in the presence of God in prayer if you're his? And you think, well, I, man, I 5, 10, 15 minutes. And think about how if you had a spouse, think about if you only spent 5 or 10 or 15 minutes with your spouse every day. How good of a relationship would you have with a spouse or a loved one if you only spent five or ten or fifteen minutes with them every day. Realize that's hardly that's hardly enough. And if you are apart from him and you're listening and you realize I'm apart from him, why aren't you seeking him? Why aren't you seeking God? Because look at how much God loves you. And look what he did for you. The Bible says that God is seeking man. God loves man and reaches out to man. God tries to woo us. And all we have to do is respond to him. We already talked about many ways that Jesus has shown us that he is real and loves us. Many ways. We've looked at how much Jesus loves us and cares for us. 
And today we even looked at how he has given us that correct, you know, in prophecy and there's other things. In, in Matthew, given us another chapter with prophecy, speaking about Christ coming to this world. We already saw that we can trust his roadmap. So his roadmap is accurate. We don't have to go into the Bible thinking, is this really the right one? We can look and see that it is. And since it is, and since you know that God loves you, why not seek him? Why not seek him with how much he loves you? <clears throat> Let that be a motivation. This is a correct spiritual map. This is a correct spiritual roadmap to heaven. I can trust this roadmap. I can trust this roadmap because of archaeology, because of historicity, and because of prophecy. So let me look at how much God loves me, and let me look at how much God cares for me, and let me see why won't I seek a relationship with him, because that's Satan keeping you away from God. And remember, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, with Jesus saying that he's the only way, and him having all these proofs to show that this is the correct spiritual roadmap, there's no other thing that's going to get you to heaven. There's nothing else on this planet ever at all that's going to enable you to have a relationship with God except through his Son, Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, see that God in Christ loves you and wants you to continue to more love him, seek him, continue to desire him, read his word, follow him, do whatever he, find out what he wants you to do, do the things that he says he wants you to do, or start seeking him, period, in your life. Because if you seek because he is a loving father, you will find Awesome things about God. Proofs about God. Proofs about Christ. You will find how much God loves you. You will find all these truths. And don't run from Him. Don't run from Him. Because He loves us so much. He's constantly wooing you right now. He's drawing you to Himself right now. He says, come to me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Please come to me. I want you to be with me. So, if you're out there and you realize I'm not his, I don't follow him, I'm not on his path, please turn now before it's too late. You're not guaranteed another moment on this planet. You could die this very moment. Your heart could seize in your chest and you could die. And you'd have to stand before God. And if you're thinking, well, I'm a good person. I've done some good things in my life. I've, you know, I've been just. Well, Jesus said there is no one good but God. No one good but God. So what's the opposite of good? It's not bad. Good versus in the movies is good versus evil. Jesus said, you being evil, he spoke to people, one of our last things, one of the things we've read over in the past since we've been doing this church, is Jesus, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your heavenly Father knows how to give good things from above. So he, Jesus even said it, only God is good, which makes us evil. And he said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Jesus even said, 
Because of sin, we're evil. But He loves us anyway and calls out to us anyway, no matter what He calls out to us. And just wants us to respond to His wooing. By seeking Him in His Word, seek Him in prayer, and finding out the things that He wants you to do and making a decision in your life to do them. Uh, please, if, if you know that's you out there right now, please turn in your hearts right now and turn to Him. And put your trust in Him. And give your life to Him. And decide to not live your life for you anymore right now. And decide to live your life for Jesus. One life will soon be passed. And the Bible really says only what's done for Christ will last. God is calling out to you right now. Please turn to Him with all your heart before it's too late. And repent to your sins, which means not just to say sorry, but to stop doing them. And to turn to Him, surrender your life to Him. And fall down on your knees and cry out to Him and ask Him to save you. And God, we thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for your correct spiritual roadmap. Thank you so much for your love. And I just pray right now, dear God, for the Christians that are here in this, Lord God, that they would seek your face more and more and more and more and more every day, Lord God. Not for five minutes or not for ten minutes, Lord God, but if they want to have a good relationship with you, Lord God, which is what you want, they would give you their time every day in your word and in prayer and finding out the things that you want them to do and that they would do them. They would purpose in their minds and their hearts. I'm not spending enough time with God right now. I need to seek him more. I want to have a better relationship with him right now. And Lord God, for those out there right now that aren't listening, I pray that they would come to see how much you love them and that they would come to seek you and start seeking you Start seeking you. That you could reveal yourself to them all the more. That they would respond to your wooing them with your love. And that they would come into the fold. That they would come in to be your child. And submit their lives to you. I love you and I praise you, dear God. And I bless you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.